So happy Mother's Day again. Those are words that should make all of us happy as we remember our moms or are appreciated as moms. So turn to a mother near you. I don't really do this often, but say it together. Say it to someone. Um, happy Mother's Day. All right. So those are pleasant words, right? Now, there are other words and phrases that might irk some women today, even those in churches. Words like authority, submission, complementarianism, patriarchy. There are women who find them offensive. Today is not the day to figure out why, but as we study the Bible cover to cover, Declaring the whole counsel of God, we find that not all male leaders oppress and denigrate those weaker than them. At the same time, the Bible is brutally honest about how sinful men in power do indeed oppress and denigrate those weaker than them. Frankly, that honesty is what makes the Word of God more believable to me. But I'm also hopeful. That's because we're destined for the kingdom in which Christ, the Son of Man, the last Adam, will rule. Grace will reign through righteousness, to eternal life through him. We keep our eyes on that glorious future as we turn to the realities of this fallen world. And while reading today's passage, I need you to look with eyes of faith beyond the way things are, and look to the way things God intended, and even the way things will be. So I'll read this chapter. Uh, this is Second Samuel chapter 3. In four portions, as we continue with the life of David, as he struggles to establish himself, and as you read this in Second Samuel 3, We'll see God's vision of authority, and uh, let's start with 2 Samuel 3, 1 through 11. Now there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, but David grew stronger and stronger, and the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. Sons were born to David in Hebron. His firstborn was Amnon by Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess. His second, Kiliah, by Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite. The third, Absalom, the son of Maacah, the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur. The fourth, Adonijah, the son of Haggith. The fifth, Shephatiah, the son of Abital. And the sixth, Ithram, by David's wife, Eglah. These were born to David in Hebron. Now it was so, while there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, that Abner was strengthening his hold on the house of Saul. And Saul had a concubine whose name was Rispa, the daughter of Aiah. So Ishbosheth said to her, Why have you gone into my father's concubine? Then Abner became very angry at the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head that belongs to Judah? Today I show loyalty to the house of Saul, your father, to, your, to his brothers and to his friends, and I have not delivered you into the hand of David. And you charge me today with the fault concerning this woman? May God do so to Abner, and more also, if I do not do 
for David as the Lord has sworn to him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. And he could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. So I'm going to stop here and talk about the vision of God's authority I see here. God overcomes our simple tactics and establishes his reign. God overcomes our simple tactics and establishes his reign. And I'll explain that now. Binding verses 1 to 11 together are the repeated mentions of the house of Saul. Three times the narrator speaks of his decline. In verse 1, Saul's house is dwarfed, meaning that it's starting to look smaller and smaller next to David's house. Then in verse 6, we see how Saul's house exhibits internal divisions and strife between the king and his commander. That culminates in Abner's angry outburst that effectively ends the cordial relationship. And there's the house of Saul mentioned again in verse 10, but it's about to become powerless next to the throne of David. Now, if we only have verses 1, 6, 9, and 10, you'd be like, great, you go, David. Way to come around, Abner. But we can't ignore all that's taking in place between and after those verses. It's true that God wanted to establish David over all of Israel. He wanted Abner to submit to the true king. These are good aims that the Lord desires. But the men in charge, both Abner and David, were going about this in the wrong way. They wanted to progress they were willing to transgress. They used simple tactics. So let's start with David. If we only had the first words of verse 2 and the last words of verse 5, it's all good. Sons were born to David in Hebron. Congrats. Great. But the Bible doesn't shy away from exposing the faults of men, even those of faith. So even though David was a mighty man of valor, a man of war from youth, he did not flee his youthful lusts. David knew well that God intended marriage between one man and one wife. But once that holy matrimony goes out of its biblical boundaries, in particular from monogamy to polygamy, we're in trouble. There's trouble everywhere. The family's in trouble. The children of such homes they're in trouble. Though those children did nothing wrong, they do not have a stable scriptural foundation at home. Parenting's hard enough as it is, and sibling rivalries are inevitable, even in a normal family. But all these problems are far worse, exponentially so, when men have multiple wives. We already saw some of this earlier in the Bible. We're going to find out more later in 2 Samuel. Our society's also in trouble when our leaders do not follow God's will for marriage. We can go on with about that in another sermon. But here, how could David ignore the command of Deuteronomy 17, 17? The king must not multiply wives for himself, lest his heart 
turns away. Well, David did what many powerful men did at that time. He gave his strength to women, his ways to that which destroys kings. Just to rewind, David did start with one wife, Michal. But we saw back in 1 Samuel 25 that her father saw Gabriel away to another man named Palti, the son of Laish from Galim. More on this couple in a moment. Then David took two wives, Ahinoam, the mother of Amnon and Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the mother of Kiliab, also called Daniel in 1 Chronicles. It's no accident that these wives were from Jezreel in the northern area and Carmel in the south, respectively. David wasn't just making moves on women. He's making political moves among the Israelites. But as you can see from the second half of verse 3, up to verse 5, the king's not satisfied with those two. It's worth discussing a little Ma'aka. She's a princess, daughter of Talmai, king of Gashur. The kingdom of Gashur was located east of the Jordan River, and they existed as a distinct, unassimilated people among the Israelites. And so here's David securing his position through marriage with a foreign king's daughter. Meanwhile, Abner also secures his own position while the ground's shaking beneath him. You could say he's rising to the top of a sinking ship. But the puppet king, Ishbosheth, doesn't like what the puppeteer is doing. Now, you might argue that Ishbosheth's accusation in verse 7 is a baseless claim. Maybe the king's assuming falsely that his commander's sleeping with his father's concubine. But verse 6 before it suggests that the commander knew exactly what he was doing. His relationship with Rispa was not only sexual immorality, sexual activity outside of God's design of marriage, the power move to strengthen his hold on the house of Saul. Sadly, this was not unprecedented in ancient times. You recall in Genesis 35, 22, that Reuben made the same move with his father's concubine, Jacob's uh, concubine, Bilhah, in attempts to secure his firstborn blessings. But his father called him out on it. He did not allow him to get away with it. Same here with Ishbosheth, but he couldn't match the gravitas of the patriarch Jacob. He just ended up offending Abner. Am I a dog's head that belongs to Judah? He snaps. The commander's asking whether he's a worthless, decapitated hound. Also, he's asking whether he's ever been disloyal to Saul's house. He's shown fidelity and have yet to hand over Ishbosheth to David. So he's both defensive and offensive. But this was, this was not just a venting session. He's about to take action. The prophecy of David's future reign was already known to Saul's house. And now Abner will be the agent of his fulfillment. We see in verses 9 to 10 the determination to end the resistance and establish David over all of Israel. That includes all the tribes. That includes all the territories from Dan to Beersheba. 
Dan and Beersheba are northern and southern extremes of Israel. It's like that song we sing, you know, this land is our land, right? The way California to New York Island are western and eastern extremes of our land. So fierce and forceful was Abner's outburst that Ishbosheth was too scared to say another word. So the house of Saul, not like any troubled community, not only feels the weight of outside forces, it's starting to collapse under its own weight. It's imploding with envy, strife, and divisions. Yet even in this dark situation, God's vision of authority shines through. God overcomes our simple tactics to fulfill his plan. So let's see how the story moves forward in 2 Samuel 3, 12 to 21. Then Abner sent messengers on his behalf to David, saying, Whose is the land? Saying also, Make your covenant with me, and indeed my hand shall be with you to bring all Israel to you. And David said, Good, I will make a covenant with you, but one thing I require of you, you shall not see my face unless you first bring Michal, Saul's daughter, when you, you have, uh, when you come to see my face. So David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, Give me my wife Michal, whom I betrothed my, to myself, for a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. And Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband, from Paltiel, the son of Laish. Then her husband went along with her to Bahurim, weeping behind her. So Abner said to him, Go return. And he returned. Now Abner had communicated with the elders of Israel, saying, In time past, you are seeking for David to be king over you. Now then, do it. For the Lord has spoken of David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and the hand of all their enemies. And Abner also spoke in the hearing of Benjamin. Then Abner also went to speak in the hearing of David in Hebron. All that seemed good to Israel and the whole house of Benjamin. So Abner and 20 men with him came to David at Hebron, and David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. Then Abner said to David, I will arise and go and gather all Israel to my lord the king, that they may make a covenant with you, and that you may reign over all that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away, and he went in peace. So I observe here the following vision of God's authority. God uses our eager loyalty to unite his people. God uses our eager loyalty to unite his people. So a quick note on the structure. Notice how verses 12 and 21 contain some key words and phrases that carve out this passage. Make covenant with me or you, all Israel. These communicate loyalty and unity under the one and true king. And as flawed as he is, Abner embodies eager loyalty. He wastes no time and opens communications with David. The question, whose is the land, is a rhetorical one. Abner used it to point to himself as the one with the power to give David what he wants, absolute control over Israel. David takes the bait but counters with the test of loyalty for Ishbosheth and Abner. He wants Michal back. 
Now, while I don't doubt that David wants to be reunited with his first love, there's definitely a calculated political maneuvering here. It's better for David's public image to present himself as the son-in-law of Saul more than the son of Jesse from Judah. The people would have a flashback and remember the young David's courage and bravery back in 1 Samuel 18, 25-30, how he was willing to take down 100 Philistines, actually ended up killing 200 for the hand of Michal. But it's been a while since David and Michal have been together. Since then, both have moved on, in a sense. Again, we saw earlier this chapter how David married many wives. We read back in 1 Samuel 25, verse 44, how Saul gave Michal to Paltiel, the son of Laish. And you see what happens when men treat daughters and wives as objects, weapons, and tools. There's heartbreak like the ones we see in verse 16. Most importantly, it dishonors God. And all that could have been avoided if kings followed God's standard of marriage and commit to one wife by covenant. Now back to Abner. He does as he's told concerning Michal. Next, he uses his influence to David's advantage He has the ear of the most influential leaders, the elders of Israel. We read between the lines in 2 Samuel 3.17 that there was already some talk among them of being done with this civil war and submitting to David. Abner himself may have initially dismissed the idea, but he's saying, now then, do it. And he's persuasive. In the second half of verse 18, Abner does not appeal to their weakness as the main reason for this change. Rather, he points to the prophetic word. By doing so, he directs their attention to God and the common enemies of Israel, especially those pesky Philistines. Abner also speaks specifically, more specifically with the tribe of Benjamin. Remember that Saul comes from that that house. So all that Abner communicates to Israel and on behalf of them to David was good for the nation. God uses his eager loyalty to unite his people. The commander takes an escort with him to Hebron where David welcomes them with the feast. But Abner is not satisfied with this. He's still eager to prove his fidelity. So he goes to gather all Israel to the king. David sends them away sends them away in peace. Life is good in Hebron. It'd be too bad if someone comes to mess that up. So now here comes Joab to mess everything up. So let's read what happens next. 2 Samuel 3, 22 to 30. At that moment, the servants of David and Joab came from a raid and brought much spoil with them. But Abner was not with David in Hebron, for he had sent him away, and he had gone in peace. When Joab and all the troops that were with him had come, they told Joab, saying, Abner the son of Ner came to the king, and he sent him away, and he has gone in peace. Then Joab came to the king and said, What have you done? Look, Abner came to you. Why is it that you sent him away, and he has already gone? 
Surely you realize that Abner the son of Ner came to deceive you, to know you're going out and you're coming in, and to know all that you are doing. And when Joab had gone from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner, who brought him back from the well of Sirah. But David did not know it. Now when Abner had returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside in the gate to speak with him privately, and there stabbed him in the stomach, so that he died for the blood of Asahel, his brother. Afterward, when David heard it, he said, My kingdom and I are guiltless before the Lord forever of the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. Let it rest on the head of Joab and on all his father's house. And let there never fail to be in the house of Joab one who has a discharge or is a leper who leans on a staff or falls by the sword or who lacks bread. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner because he had killed their brother Asahel at Gibeon in the battle. So here's the next vision of God's authority. God desires peace, not unjust vengeance in his kingdom. God desires peace, not unjust vengeance in his kingdom. So just when it seemed like the bloodshed was coming to an end, here we go again. At first, there's this repeated emphasis on the peaceful manner of Abner's departure. Go back to verse 21. It says at the end, David sent Abner away and he went in peace. Look at the end of verse 22. Abner was gone by the time Joab arrived, for he, David, had sent him away and he had gone in peace. Verse 23, the people told Joab, saying, Abner the son of Ner came to the king. And he sent him away, and he has gone in peace. Three times we're told that Joab's rival left Hebron in peace. Joab won't have that. He confronts the king. It's obvious that he doesn't trust his discernment. Verse 24 suggests he wants to have a talk with Abner himself. But then in verse 25, there's no doubting what Joab thinks of him. He slanders him. He assumes the worst about him. He's already decided that Abner's up to no good. Without permission from his superior, he dispatches the messengers to bring him back. And he hadn't gone that far yet. The will of Siraz thought to be about a mile from Hebron. I don't know what excuse Joab gave to have Abner make the U-turn, but Abner complied. And then we look at verse 27 closely as Abner gets close to the city. It says in the middle of that verse, Joab took him aside in the gate to speak with him privately. It's like some effort to get him outside of the city, but still near the city. In the gate, doesn't say in the city. So why is that? Recall that Hebron is one of the six cities of refuge. To there, the one who slays a man accidentally can flee and find protection from the avenger of blood. The one pursued has the right to a fair trial to stand before the congregation in judgment. Now, Joab knew all this. He couldn't risk Abner entering the city of refuge. Now, you may argue that this case doesn't really completely apply to that passage that talks about the cities of refuge. 
But Abner could maybe ask for a hearing concerning the blood of uh, Joab's brother Asahel. Remember, Abner killed him during battle at Gibeon in the previous chapter, 2 Samuel chapter 2. Joab sees Abner as a murderer, but Abner could make his case. He could say he warned Asahel multiple times, he acted in self-defense, or the casualties of war do not count as murder. At any rate, it wasn't up to Joab to decide. That's up to the congregation. But at this point, with the popularity of Abner, and it's undeniable the welcome he just received from the king, Joab knows Abner won't be tried. He can't meet and kill him in battle anymore. Maybe he fantasized a scene like the one from Princess Bride. You know, hello, my brother, my name is Joab, son of Zeruiah. You killed my brother. Prepare to die. That can't happen anymore. So he concocts a plot with Abishai, according to verse 30. We can say that, see that they work together. Somehow they isolate Abner so that he's away from his soldiers. Perhaps Abner's men let their guard down, thinking none would spill blood right near a city of refuge, where they were just welcomed and celebrated. Meanwhile, Joab pulled them aside to a dark corner in the gate, maybe, just outside of Hebron. It's possible that he did hear what he would do later in 2 Samuel 20, hide a blade, greet the rival, use his right hand to take him by his beard, to kiss him, stab him with the left. But that's how Joab deems himself to be the avenger, but actually becomes the murderer himself. He rejected God's vision of authority. God desires peace not unjust vengeance in his kingdom. We see later in 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 5, that it's unjust because Joab shed the blood of war in peacetime. Now that blood requires reckoning. David declares a curse over Joab and his family now, but he'll leave it up to the next king to punish Joab personally. Now we may question this delay, but we don't have to question the king's sincerity as we move on to the last part of 2 Samuel 3, verses 31 to 39. So let's do that. Then David said to Joab and to all the people who were with him, tear your clothes, gird yourselves with sackcloth and mourn for Abner. And King David followed the coffin. So they buried Abner in Hebron, and the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner, and all the people wept. And the king sang a lament over Abner and said, Should Abner die as a fool dies? Your hands were not bound, nor your feet put into fetters. As a man falls before wicked men, so you fell. Then all the people wept over him again. And when all the people came to persuade David to eat food while it was still day, David took an oath, saying, God do so to me, and more also if I taste bread or anything else till the sun goes down. Now all the people took note of it, and it pleased them, since whatever the king did pleased all the people. 
For all the people and all Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's intent to kill Abner, the son of Ner. Then the king said to his servants, Do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? And I am weak today, though anointed king. And these men, the son of Zeruiah, are too harsh for me. The Lord shall repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. Here's the fourth vision of God's authority. The Lord seeks godly sorrow in his leaders. The Lord seeks godly sorrow in his leaders. Now, if 2 Samuel 3 ended at verse 30, one may question David's character. Some citizens, especially the loyal followers of Abner, might ask, how do we know for sure that David didn't prearrange his death? David knows that even allowing for such thoughts to exist and fester could lead to national disaster. So David takes some initiative in verses 31 to 39. The actions of the king are met with the reactions of the people. Look at all the repeated mentions of that key phrase, all the people, in relation to David. Verse 31, David spoke to Joab and to all the people. Verse 32, the king wept at the grave of Abner, and all the people wept. Verse 33, the king sang a lament, expressing how Abner did not die as a prisoner of war, but as a victim, played and tricked by wicked men. In verse 34, then all the people wept over him again. Now in verse 35, when all the people try to get him to eat, he refuses and fasts until evening. It says in verse 36, now all the people took note of it, and it pleased them, since whatever the king did pleased all the people. One more in verse 37. All the people and all Israel understood that David never intended to kill Abner. So you get the picture. And while eyes are on him, David's not afraid to mix vulnerability with authority, humility with majesty. He'll be a king who not only strikes fear, but also sheds tears. The sweet psalmist of Israel became the bitter mourner of Abner. David does not choose this day to promote himself as king, to make himself great, exalted in Israel. That's because, as he says, a prince and a great man has fallen in Israel. In fact, he's willing to admit in verse 39, I am weak today, though anointed king. And perhaps the world encourages us to look to stoic, unfeeling leadership types. Never show weakness. Better to be feared than loved. But the Lord seeks godly sorrow in his leaders. And such sorrow actually motivates not only kings, but all of us to action. It says in 2 Corinthians 7.11, Observe this very thing that you sorrowed in a godly manner. What diligence it produced in you. What clearing of yourselves. What indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication. In this case, David's godly sorrow leads him to denounce publicly Joab and Abishai. He clearly implicates them as evildoers. 
and invokes the Lord to punish them. So let's review again God's vision of authority. God overcomes our simple tactics and establishes his reign. God uses our eager loyalty to unite his people. God desires peace, not unjust vengeance in his kingdom. God seeks godly sorrow in his leaders. Today's a good passage as any to emphasize God, his holiness, and his sovereignty. That's because none of the main characters here are without fault. Joab and Abishai display insubordination, grudge, malice, deceit, murder, lack of faith in God's ultimate judgment. Abner eventually did the right thing by submitting to David, but before that we see him in fornication, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions. Even David, despite all the good he did, he's lustful for power and women. Harley heroes. But let me ask you, are we better than these men? Sure, we may not literally stab someone in the stomach like Joab, but perhaps proverbially, we stab someone in the back. Maybe like him, we disobeyed our authorities and spoke evil of others as if we are the judge. Perhaps if we had the same privilege and unchecked power, some of these men, we would not be so different. The truth is we all fail and we fall short of God's standard. We've broken his laws. We've sinned in thought, word, and deed. Because of that, we were guilty before the Lord forever. He will repay the evildoers according to their wickedness. And that payment is death. Eternal separation from God in hell. If the wrath of an earthly king is like the roaring of a lion, how much more the wrath of the king eternal. But praise God that he sent his son to earth. He fulfilled the scriptures. Jesus lived a perfect life. He gave up his life as a sacrifice, crucified and died to pay no penalty of sin that we should pay. He rose again from the grave and ascended to heaven. Someday he'll judge the living and the dead and his appearing and his kingdom. And now is the time to give up, surrender to him, repent, turn from selfishness and self-righteousness, Believe, turn to Jesus the King. Trust in him. You cannot earn or deserve entrance into his kingdom of heaven. God saves us by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The gospel provides a vision of God's authority that's powerful, majestic, yet merciful and welcoming. I hope that this last song is a testimony for you. Think about these words. I had no hope that you would own a rebel to your will. And if you had not loved me first, I would refuse you still. Hallelujah, all I have is Christ. Hallelujah, Jesus is my life. Let's pray.
Lord, we thank you for your reign, your sovereignty. You are the creator, sovereign ruler over the universe. That gives us peace. And for us who know the gospel, that gives us comfort in a world that's gone astray in so many ways. And we can still see, Lord, uh, through your word, clearly that you have a plan. And Lord, we think about what we've read in this chapter and just the, the simpleness of men there. But Lord, how even in spite of that, Lord, you are able to advance your plan to establish David and through the line of David eventually send your son, Jesus Christ. But as we think about that, how just, Lord, you are patient with us, how you love us and you forgive us and accomplish your plan. Lord, help us to see ourselves in that story as ones forgiven. May we make the decision to submit and surrender to your ultimate authority in our lives. We thank you and we pray all these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.